Hello everybody, I'm Jacopo Dettoni and this is the FDI podcast. Developing countries have been busy refining investment promotion strategies to increase their appeal as an investment destination. But does investment promotion really matter to foreign investors? The Trade and Competitiveness Global Practice Division of the World Bank tried to answer this and many other questions in a comprehensive survey among 754 executives of multinational corporations investing in developing countries. Their findings show that investment promotion agencies, also known as IPAs, still have little influence in the decision-making of foreign investors. Only 43% of the surveyed investors say that IPAs are important or critically important in their decision to invest. The lowest among investment climate factors, including transparency and predictability of public institutions, as well as protection guarantees provided in the host country's laws. The relatively low rating of importance of IPAs, the World Bank survey concludes, does not necessarily suggest that host countries should not strengthen them. The reverse could actually be true, that host countries currently offer poor quality IPA services for investors, which is why investors' perceptions are not very positive. I'm here with Courtney Finger, editor-in-chief of FDI magazine. Courtney, you have been covering IPA strategies for many years now, so what is your first reactions before these findings? Well, I can't say I'm overly surprised by the findings. Many, if not most of the companies that I speak to don't even know what an investment promotion agency is, and oftentimes they just might not even care. Right. I remember once speaking to the CEO of a UK-based SME, and one that had globalized very quickly in a number of years, 50 offices around the world, and he'd never heard of an investment promotion agency, and had he nor his team had never even dealt with one in any of the 50 countries in which they had expanded. A lot of those countries they expanded in were in the developing world. And it was a real shame, I thought, because once I told him about some of the things that IPAs do, he was quite intrigued. So his company really could have benefited from some help and assistance as they entered these markets. And I think that that story is, is fairly typical. So I think that IPAs do have a battle uh, for relevancy sometimes. And they really need to work hard to make the companies aware, not just of the attributes and the strengths of their locations, but also about themselves, their organizations and the services that they can offer. I think, as the study says, a big problem is is actually the quality of those services. So there's, there's partly an issue of awareness of what IPAs can do, but then there's the quality. And, and it's not unique to developing countries as well. You have good IPAs and bad IPAs all around the world. And really, the, the point is, are the services streamlined? Are they efficient? Are they helpful? And therefore, are they valuable to a company as they move into that market? And this is really where the focus needs to be. And every place now is declaring that they're a one-stop shop, for example. But but in the majority of cases, it, it's not. It's and not that's too. a successful IPA really should be this one-stop shop to help facilitate everything to do with the investment and make sure that it's as easy as possible. I know that um, investment promotion officials work extremely hard, but I think there's a lot more work that could be done in adding that value that they could in terms of facilitating investment. Right. So basically, this uh, World Bank survey was a very comprehensive survey, and uh, their findings go much 
beyond the, 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 the role of IPAs, but they asked uh, these executives uh, about their uh, what are the most important factors in their decision making when it comes to actually find the right location for their investment. Before hearing from the IPAs themselves, let's hear what Annabel Gonzalez, who is a senior director with the World Bank and uh, oversaw this whole uh, survey, what she, she told me in Vienna uh, just a couple of weeks ago. As regards the uh, survey, um, I think that there are several highlights. The first one is the importance, of course, that uh, uh, of foreign direct investment as a mechanism for financing in developing uh, countries. Uh, it is clear that official development assistance and uh, remittances uh, are, of course, uh, very small if you compare them to uh, investment flows, and that developing countries need private investment to be able to meet the sustainable development goals. So that, I think, is something that comes out very clearly. Uh, second point is that there are different drivers uh, for uh, investment, but certainly uh, macroeconomic uh, stability and a business climate that is favorable to investment uh, come up on the list. We saw from the report investment from developing countries into developing countries has been increasing, and we also find out uh, that uh, investors from developing countries uh, seem to be more resilient uh, in terms of uh, investing in developing countries, uh, which may be because they themselves um, uh, are more used to managing certain levels of uncertainty. This resilience uh, of uh, investors coming from developing countries into, into other developing countries is something of, uh, of interest because it seems to be that the risk level uh, that uh, uh, these investors are willing to tolerate uh, is, uh, is a bit higher uh, than more uh, sort of established investors from developed countries, which I, I think should be interpreted not as, you know, as a signal that there's not a, a need for a reform agenda to continue, uh, uh, on the contrary, but that there is, uh, it's worth pursuing uh, investors from developing countries, particularly when you're thinking about some some destinations, uh, fragile and complex states that may be very challenging and where there's uh, the level of risk is very high. There may be options uh, for pursuing investors from developing countries as a, as a means of uh, having first you know, first movers into the country. And uh, that is something that I think is important uh, from, uh, from the perspective of, uh, of a developing country. So, Courtney, a few interesting points uh, here. What, what can be the main takeaways uh, from these findings for uh, policymakers involved in uh, the design of investment promotion strategies? Well, again, I would reiterate the, the point of making sure that the services are top-notch and adding value. I think the the trend of developing countries investing into other developing countries is very clear and will only continue to accelerate and that is helpful in the sense that those companies from developing markets are more um, they, they can handle more risk they're more right. used to it but they still need the same services so I think that should not lend itself to complacency in terms of making the investment environment as simple and seamless as possible it just because companies can take on more risk doesn't mean that they necessarily want to or that the investment process should be complicated. So I think that really the message to draw from all of it is that uh, investment promotion agencies have an important role to play in facilitating investment, but they should also see themselves as advocates for continual improvements in their investment environments in order to attract investors, um, not just from other developing countries, but from advanced markets as well, and to make their investment offer as strong as possible. 
Right. So let's hear from the IPA themselves. Um, as as mentioned, this this survey was uh, was presented in Vienna in an event where the World Bank invited many uh, IPAs from all over the globe. And uh, one uh, one major case and one one case of great interest was the case of Ethiopia. Ethiopia, a country that uh, to many has been known for many years for mostly for famines and deprivation, but uh, in fact. It has quietly like uh, pulled itself out of this this big troubles and become a, a pretty interesting hotspot for a specific type of foreign investment, specifically uh, labor-intensive uh, uh, manufacturing. So I met with uh, Dr. Kebe Okubai, who is a special advisor to the prime minister in uh, Ethiopia and uh, also in charge of designing investment promotion strategies in the country. We are primarily focused on agriculture and manufacturing. In this uh, manufacturing sector, the prime focus is on uh, one on this uh, light manufacturing. When we say light manufacturing, these are industries that are labor intensive, mainly for exporting uh, market, and uh, as well as mostly linked with agriculture. So within this, we have like apparel in textile is important for two reasons. As we are a newly industrializing nation, that is a very good learning plan. And it's also a growing industry. Uh, it's a $1.2 trillion uh, industry. Uh, and it, you can create millions of jobs with apparel and textiles. So with this uh, basic approach, the focus has been to attract on investors and we had to start with questions. What are the binding constraints for FDI? When we say this, it means uh, we have to look at existing investors, what issues they face. For instance, they face power quality issues. They face uh, uh, issues related with uh, customs clearance. They also face uh, problems with uh, infrastructure and utilities outside energy as well. So one uh, basic key direction we have put is focusing on building industrial parks so that we make sure that the binding constraints will be addressed with this uh, framework. And actually, Ethiopia has been a, a quite successful uh, case in terms of attracting a foreign investment. Last year, just Greenfield uh, FDI uh, reached a record level of uh, $6.7 billion, um, according to the figures of our database, FDI markets. As the country is uh, capitalizing, in a way, on uh, macroeconomic and political stability, but also on the infrastructure development that has been delivered over the few year, the last few years by Chinese uh, contractors, and also this, uh, the, this this investment promotion strategy is very sort of seems to be very targeted and very specific in terms of setting up uh, industrial industrial parks equipped for uh, specific industries like apparel and uh, and uh, and uh, textile. Uh, following in the footsteps of other countries that have been very successful in this, like for example Vietnam, and another country that seems to be to to be willing in a way to to replicate uh, the success of uh, uh, Ethiopia is now Myanmar, who is a country obviously uh, that is experiencing a very different uh, uh, political situation. The country is transitioning towards democracy after many years of uh, uh, military uh, dictatorship, but is uh, is also very rich in uh, uh, natural resources like natural gas, for example. But is also trying to to leverage is a big and deep pool of uh, labor force, uh, pretty uh, convenient uh, labor force from the to the eyes of foreign investors to attract 
uh, growing uh, inflows of uh, of uh, FDI. So I spoke to Mr. Oning, who is the head of the investment promotion agency there in uh, Myanmar. Government has already claimed that our promoter sector will be number one manufacturing sectors because we want to have more job opportunities for you know the, the people of Myanmar. So therefore, we are prioritizing the manufacturing sector as our the the you know one of the prioritized sectors for for investment and also we are promoting investment infrastructure development because Myanmar's infrastructure is still very weak we do need a lot of investment and government itself cannot invest you know sufficiently to the infrastructure sector so therefore we need some private investment in the infrastructure therefore infrastructure has become our another priority of of investment promotion thirdly agriculture because Myanmar's economy is is based on agriculture so therefore you know for us agriculture is extremely important not only for investment but also for poverty alleviation and rural development and other other issues so in the agriculture is one of the top priorities so i think Myanmar is interesting for uh, for a couple of reasons here uh uh, definitely for the, their idea again to, to, to focus on labor intensive manufacturing. But before getting to that, I think it's also interesting for the fact that, again, going back to the survey that emphasizes the importance or the predictability of a regulatory framework. Uh, Myanmar, when the, the country actually got a first ever democratic government last year, uh, many people expected the country to, to have like an, an immediate investment boom. But this didn't happen, right? Because uh, investors were still sort of in a wait and see mode because they they felt things maybe get better, but they just wanted to have clear in mind what would be the, the policy of uh, a democratic government as opposed to the, the the investment promotion strategies or the military junta that was in charge until just a couple of years ago. But currently, going back to manufacturing, so uh, obviously these countries they got good reasons to focus on uh, labor intensive manufacturing. But let me be a bit progressive provocative here uh, uh, in the long run does it really make sense in the era of uh, automation to focus on uh, big labor intensive manufacturing well in the long term maybe not but I think it has a sense in the short term because these are countries that have urgent job creation needs today and in many developing countries they can't necessarily afford to skip a step and go straight to automation. The skills aren't there. The technology's not there. And that's not where they're at in terms of their workforce or their economy. So I think there's there's clearly always going to be a role for manufacturing. It's just that how things are manufactured are going to change. So the best thing, com- countries at an early stage of development, the best thing they can do is go ahead and get involved in the manufacturing value chain. So go ahead and attract the projects now, create those jobs and hope that they can then evolve with the manufacturing processes as those evolve. And that that really would come through proper worker training. Right. And actually, there is also clear evidence in uh, in different countries that uh, this, uh, let's say, low added value manufacturing still through linkages with local suppliers and a local supply chain that can help uh, sort of uh, uh, the development of uh, the, the level of complexity of a host economy. And this was the case, for example, there were a couple of studies on this on Turkey, that Turkey has been very successful in the last uh, 20, 30 years in attracting FDI and, and translating this FDI into an opportunity for uh, local industry to evolve and develop. And today there is, uh, for example, a very 
advanced uh, aero, aerospace uh, industry in uh, in Turkey. That's right. I think it is that important step that necessarily can't be skipped, essentially. Right, right. Uh, on the other hand, there are countries that uh, definitely lack the, the, the market size and the labor force of uh, Ethiopia or Myanmar or Turkey. And uh, so smaller countries have to, 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 to find... Uh, Uh, other elements of appeal uh, to come up with a solid investment uh, proposition. Uh, one of these countries is uh, Tunisia, which is an interesting country because uh, now economic growth is sort of picking up six years after the, the Arab Spring. And I met with uh, Khalil Labidi, who is the head of uh, FIPA, which is the Tunisia Investment Promotion Strategy. And this is what he said. In industry, we are working uh, now uh, to implement uh, foreign companies. We have uh, 67 companies working in uh, car components, providing uh, all OMEs uh, all over the world. And we have uh, a new uh, industry of uh, aeronautics with uh, 880 companies working uh, for Airbus. And uh, now the new sector, communication, Because in Tunisia we have a very high level of unemployment with high-skilled persons. We're still working with France, Italy and Germany as the three main countries. But now we are looking for our continent, which is Africa, because we can be a big hub between Europe and G2 and America. Again, I guess here the idea of, uh, also from an investment promotion perspective, of uh, growing inflows of uh, capital from developing countries. Also, a country like Tunisia is now starting to look not exclusively to its uh, European partner, but also to its African partner, which probably, with whom probably shares more uh, uh, cultural and trade uh, trade ties. Uh, And it's also obviously trying to leverage its uh, position, and this is not an isolated case. Uh, It is also the case, for example, of another Uh, countries, small country, but uh, very uh, strategically located at the heart of the, the Caucasus region, which is uh, Armenia. And uh, I met there in Vienna with Alexandra Hachaturia, who is uh, the executive director of the Center for Strategic Initiatives that support the government in its uh, investment promotion uh, strategy. The existing government has, uh, which is in power basically in office, slightly more than one year. The policy that we have approached is this as a country as a platform policy approach. Basically, our market is small for a lot of investors, but we're located in a very interesting ge- geographic area where we're bordering with Iran and we're a member of Eurasian Economic Union. And we propose ourselves not only as access to Armenian market, but more as access to Iranian market and also the market of Eurasian Economic Union. So in terms of, for instance, doing business in Eurasian Economic Union, I think Armenia is, is in a very, very favorable position, both in terms of existing legislation, also the doing business rankings, etc. We have, this year we have improved our ranking on Global Competitiveness Index and its government program to actually reach a top 20 in the do, doing business for the, in the next five years. And our banking system is very good. It's very internationally connected and we have big banks operating in the country. So, and on top of that, what we create, we create sort of different um, other infrastructure and regulatory frameworks necessary for accessing to those markets. For instance, in case of Iran, what we do, we are going to open a free economic zone on the border with Iran. So basically, that zone and the, the, the distance between that zone and Iran is going to be just one bridge that you have to cross on customs clearance. So a lot of companies that want to access Iranian market. But for some reason, they don't want to keep their assets in Iran. 
they can keep their assets on the border with Iran in Armenia, which is, as I said, I think, if I remember correctly, no, number 38 on doing business. We don't have capital repatriation restriction. We don't have money transfer restriction. We have very good banking system, very liberal jurisdiction. With the problems, of course, but at least comparably, we're in a very favorable position. Also, the market that can give you access and non-tariff regulation reaching to Eurasian Economic Union, also a jurisdiction that has a GSP plus with European Union and United States, also a jurisdiction that is going to enter, I hope, in the next few months, a special treaty with the European Union. So we are playing as a connector, as a gateway to different jurisdictions. Basically, Eurasian Economic Union, which is 180 million market, and Iran, which is 80 million market. So through Armenia, you can access in different ways 260 million market, which is a very good opportunity for us. Courtney, you know the case of Armenia pretty well. So how successful has been Armenia in establishing itself as a, a connector, as uh, Mr. Hachaturian uh, says? Well, in terms of the fundamentals, it it's all there. It's in place and, and it, it works in the sense of the, the government has been proactive in establishing trade relations and therefore putting the country in the position to be a gateway destination. So that play has a lot of has a lot of upside and makes a lot of sense. I think the case of the access to Iran is particularly interesting because right. that's a market that, that will be opening up that would probably interest a lot of companies but make them nervous at the same time. So Armenia presents an opportunity to go to a place that Western companies, for example, might feel more comfortable with and access an, an exciting new market. I think where Armenia suffers is in awareness of these attributes that they have. It has a, a quite low profile internationally yeah. and on the investment scene. So I'm not sure it's at that stage where it's just front of mind. So I think in terms of their role as a connector, they've got the goods and now they have to sell it. Which in a way goes back to the idea of uh, for investment promotion agency to become more relevant, to, yes. to, to, to reach out, to be more proactive in terms of reaching out to, to investors and spread the word about what can be an opportunity for them to be in a country like Armenia or Tunisia. Absolutely. I actually spoke with the relatively new head of the Development Foundation of Armenia recently, and he's um, that's the investment agency for the country, and they are now looking to hire reps, dozens of reps internationally to represent Armenia in key markets around the world. And, and that's something a lot of agencies have had for a long time, so they're now at least doing that. And I think it, uh, a profile-raising awareness international campaigns would also be valuable for them. Right. Well, I mean, a pretty different case is the case of uh, commodity to rich countries. These countries, uh, like uh, two uh, specific countries that I got in touch with, uh, Kazakhstan and Mongolia, they saw incredible, incredibly high inflows of foreign investment at the height of the, the commodity boom uh, between, uh, let's say, 2009 and 2013. Once the commodity boom was over, they really struggled in terms of restructuring their economies, in terms of keeping, uh, shoring up economic growth and uh, finding any value beyond uh, the commodity sector. So diversification has, has become uh, sort of the mantra for, for most of this, uh, uh, this country. So uh, before addressing some point uh, specifically, let's, see, let's hear what uh, Erlan Khairov, uh, who is the Vice Minister for Investments and Development of Kazakhstan, told me there in Vienna. We work more than six years, I think, with the OECD. We change the legislation, everything. Maybe you know that in Kazakhstan you can uh, visit without uh, any visa. 
so it's one of the uh, I think our victory what what we achieved and it was in all sectors in different sectors court system taxation everywhere we changed the legislation because for us it's most important to prepare the best investment climate in the region so in this year we became the member of the uh, OECD investment committee and we uh, understand that uh, is our good result that uh, our investment climate on the same standards like the, at the OECD countries. I think that Kazakhstan is an interesting example because they actually have been a pretty successful in liberalizing their investment, uh, their business environment. Uh, this issue with uh, visas, uh, it may sound uh, kind of po- not pointless, but not that important from a European perspective, but it's actually really a unique uh, element in a, in a region like Central Asia where getting a visa also for for, for big four investors let's say in the, the the oil sector or in the money sector has always been a, a sort of a sort of tricky and actually the, the, the improvement of the Kazakh business environment go beyond visas they are actually they actually been working very closely with uh, again as he mentions the OECD but also the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development and other international institutions so that in a way their international status, their international profile has been uh, rising over the years. And this makes uh, sort of makes uh, foreign investors more sort of confident and comfortable in uh, doing business there in Kazakhstan, even though it remains a very tricky uh, business environment for different elements. And that they have been successful only to a certain extent in terms of diversifying uh, the economy. There is still... Uh, much work to be done in terms of uh, developing an industrial base. We historically, Kazakhstan has never had, and developing uh, infrastructure. This is a huge country with only 20 million people, so infrastructure is key, but uh, it's not very easy for them to bring on board private investors because, uh, for, for example, from a cons- public-private partnership perspective, uh, the economic, uh, the, the business model is not really there because maybe if you if you think of a road connection maybe there are just there is just very little traffic going on that road even though that little traffic is very important for the country but uh, from a concessional perspective there is probably little money to be done there um a different case is mongolia mongolia again uh, experienced this incredibly uh, booming, bo- booming FDI inflows at the height of the commodity boom, but really struggled to reform its uh, business environment. So let's hear what Enkhabayar uh, Namil Dorj, senior advis- advisor to the prime minister, told me. And uh, nowadays, well, most of the FDI in the mining sector. And we have many livestock, more than 60 million animals. And uh, so we have very huge uh, export potential and our ne- two neighbors. So we are inviting foreign investors in the agriculture sector, usually mostly in the food processing sector. Also, one of the priorities is regarding one, one belt, one road. We have a government plan for the name of the development. It's our, our case in Mongolia, we call it development road project, how to connect Russia and China by the different of type of roads, railways, and air routes. So we're inviting also foreign investors to work together to implement these projects. And recently we have uh, Mongolian uh, and the Russian side together discussed how to implement this plan. 
So, Cornel, also looking at the experience of uh, countries all over the world, uh, how important can be for investment uh, for the diversification of these commodity-rich economies? Well, I think FDI is essential for that, and it's it's a a quicker and sure way to diversification, I think, than trying to do it organically. It's difficult to do because if if the economy and therefore the workforce is all being geared towards um, commodities and and extractive industries, then they might not be so easily geared up to to do other things. But I think it's it's essential. I, I I'm hard pressed to think of a situation where an economy was able to successfully diversify without opening up and and bringing in foreign investment to do it. I mean, we publish a ranking every year called the FDI Diversification Index, and we do one specifically for commodity economies. And Russia tops our index for that. So for all its difficulties and 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 problems in investment environment and the economy, uh, what that suggests is actually Russia's mix of FDI sectors is actually quite well diversified, and therefore that presents maybe a model for other commodity economies to look at. Right, I think uh, it brings to mind to my mind an example for of of Chile. Chile is also obviously the largest producer, the world's largest producer of copper. Uh, but over the years, they've always been very successful in diversifying the economy, also with the help of uh, foreign investment. For example, in the, the infrastructure sector, uh, there are like Canadian uh, pension funds are are famous to be involved in the, the Chilean infrastructure, in Chilean concessions. Uh, but this also, I guess, uh, also highlights uh, the importance of uh, reforms in the business environment in terms of, for example, if you look at PPPs, investors generally tend to refrain uh, from inverter, from engaging with PPPs unless the whole legislation package is there, unless uh, their risks are uh, properly hedged by the legislation and uh, through other channels. So again, and, and also if I may go back to the idea of Mongolia, for example, it's true that they got like this huge stock of animals and they grow in the wild, so they, they have a huge competitive advantage towards industrial uh, livestock. But at the same time, they Mongolia for many years has failed to meet any international standards that could allow this meat processing industry to, to export its uh, products. So again, this probably goes back to the idea of reforming the business environment, creating uh, adjusting standards to, to, to international level. So as a final remark, to, to, wrap, it, to wrap it up, uh, Courtney, and going back to the idea of to the, to the role of IPAs, so uh, what would you say, how can an investment promotion agency become uh, more relevant in the promotion of their countries? Well, in in short, it operates at a few levels. One at the the broadest level is continue is to have smart strategies for promotion and awareness of what they offer. The second layer is properly understanding what their strengths are and which sectors they could be competitive in, and therefore really carefully targeting exactly the right companies in those sectors and going to the companies with with a precise opportunity, not just doing a brochure that says what attributes there are. Think in ter- think how companies think and go to them with a very specific market opportunity, uh, which requires targeting the companies properly and understanding the companies and their strategies. And of course, the way to do this is through market intelligence and data. But the fundamental thing, which is has come up time and time again in our conversation is the fundamentals, which is doing everything possible to make the business environment, the legislation, the regulation, everything as as FDI friendly as possible.
Right. All right. Well, Corney, thank you very much for for these comments and for uh, for being on the show today. Thanks everybody for for listening. You can find the FDI podcast on fdiintelligence.com/podcast or on any other major podcast platforms like Acast or iTunes. Stay tuned. Thanks.